Welcome to the Spacecraft Podcast, presented by Dan Moscrop and brought to you by them.co.uk, who provides specialist graphic design support for commercial architects, developers and interior designers. I have here in the studio with me uh, Jenny Jones, who has her own studio. Um, and I've been introduced to you uh, through uh, Place Labs, which is something I attend quite regularly. And that was set up by uh, Sam, Lisa and Catherine from Produce UK and uh, Rosanna Fitiello, but also Payal uh, Wadawa uh, from Fjord Studio. And when I started talking about doing this podcast, um, she really excitedly said, you've got to speak to Jenny. Uh, and then I discovered on your website that you designed their studios. Now, we've met once, but I was just saying that I feel like I've known you for years. And it's really refreshing to see somebody get so excited about their craft and and just art in general. So you've had your own studio for about five years now, so... But you've got, uh, obviously, a lot of experience with people like Roger Sturk Harbour, OMA. How does that influence your work now? Greatly, I would say. Um, I, when I graduated, um, my first job was at Roger's, um, and I worked there for uh, five years. So, um, and then went on to work for OMA for a couple of years after that. And that, those periods of time, so super influential, if you like, just graduating, this is how it works, this is how you work. And actually, I learned at Rogers the importance of patience and focus. Working on really large projects takes years for them to come to fruition. And you, you have to keep, keep focused, keep, be patient so, um, to achieve that quality. So I would say that that quality became an extraordinarily important thing. That is it, quality of thought, quality of execution, um, quality in everything, I suppose. Spatial quality, too. Mm. Um, and... In order to do that, um, I suppose I also learned how to work uh, in teams. And so at Rogers, um, of course, the sort of history of Rogers, a legacy, say, starting with Pompidou and that extraordinary importance of the collaboration between the engineer and the architect with Peter Rice in that situation, Piano, Renzo Piano and, and Richard and the team around there. So the way, that, the way of working at Rogers is very much about everyone around the table, their expertise, coming to the table interdisciplinary, cross-disciplinary, listening to each other. And so that practice of advocacy and inquiry and collaboration was definitely um, instilled into me at that point, and it, it resonated very well. Mm-hmm. I'd say the other aspect of uh, Rogers that, that set me on a path to where I am now as well would be about listening and being involved in um, politics and policy making and so on, because obviously Richard has a role in that, very much so, so he would bring in people from the New Economics Foundation mm. and he introduced to space syntax and so on. So we were listening to economists and researchers and so on as much as design per se and realising that those things uh, create place and create projects in a sense. So that was uh, sort of instilled. I mean, my, my father's an economist, so I had that growing up, that experience anyway. And then uh, OMA... Um, was uh, super influential because, in a sense, some, in some ways, the, the, the approach to design was so different, completely different to Rogers. So suddenly it was like really, really focused on the individual or on the program itself, on the function, on the program. So when people talk about, or when Rem talks about his history as being a scriptwriter, Right, mm-hmm. so that became that became more sort of apparent. Maybe with time, as time has passed, I look back and realize, oh yes, of course, that the was stories that the stories that weaves in. Yeah. yeah. So suddenly, like from being at Rogers, where there was quite a limited material palette, it was like going 
into sort of a dressing up box <laughs> or make there's like these piles of materials and it was like oh my god and the materials became much more like uh, connected to the story so you're start so I was starting to understand much more about how the space and materials uh, communicate uh, a story if you like so that's yeah, I was, I was quite surprised to realise. Um, I've, I mentioned I've got a book called Experience uh, that I've had for years. Uh, a good friend of mine, Brian Edmondson, uh, designed the book, and I've had it sort of sat on my desk, and it's it's a constant source of influence. And it, it was funny to look at your website and see the Prada project that's yeah. on there. And that, is that an OMA job? Yes, yes. Um, uh, when I was there, so I was there at the end of the nineties, uh, early noughties. So. Um, that was a period, really interesting period in OMA. I mean, that was uh, Rem was having conversations with Mutcha, and that led to Prada asking OMA, "What's what could our flagship stores be?" So the beginning of the Prada project was actually a research project about um, flagship stores, and of course, at that time, like the way that flagships were being uh, created was just scale up, scale up what you did you know, in a small store, into a big store. And um, we, we at OMA looked at actually uh, what could that actually be for Prada. So that was examining sort of, you know, what is Prada about? What's the communication of that brand physically, culturally, uh, spatially? And and then thinking, what, what could that be if you were going to create these special, special stores? And from that came this idea of the epicenter, um, so this notion of a sort of energetic pulse or shaking, if you like, that would uh, uh, create sort of concentric um, waves out about the, the aura of the brand. And so from that, we looked at Los Angeles, New York, San Francisco and Tokyo. And the first store that was actually built was New York. Um, Tokyo was, in the end, uh, created by, of course, Herzog and Demuron, mm-hmm. an amazing, amazing project. And the New York project was very much about this sort of crossover between the brand, between the, the context, very much, you know, where it is in the world. That was the notion of epicenter. And then the sort of generic uh, constraints or desires and, and necessities of a retail project as well. So that was a kind of fusion of those things. So the retail experience in your work sort of yeah. given you that sort of brand influence experience as well. Yeah, com- completely. I think this is similar. It's it's an exercise of getting inside the brand or the company. What are their values? What's their sort of you know what are they trying to communicate to their customers? And and finding the materials and the sort of spatial adjacencies and volumes that um, will will create a communication of that to the customer. Outwards. Yeah. So, yeah. so that could be, you know, that that means the the, the result could be completely different for a different, uh, yeah, a different brand. Absolutely, right? yeah. Um, that's exactly it. This is the sort of stuff that we do day day in day out, and I I, I love how to weave brand into to buildings. A really interesting thing. Yeah. Um, you talked a bit there about the sort of collaboration, and it seems like you're across everything. I know when we had a chat, yeah, um, you had a bit of a bugbear about labels and definitions. I think, yeah, I, I was thinking about that. And actually, in a way, it's not, it's not necessarily about the labels and the definitions. It's about the way that they're cast, right? Or perceived, so, yeah. Yeah, perceived. So for, you know, um, have, being around the t- the best moments and projects I've found have been the moments where everyone is bringing their expertise to the table mm. and we're all listening. Yeah. You yeah. know, so again, it's that sort of advocacy and inquiry. And the worst moments have been where people have been self-interested and protecting. Mm. So I think that when people work on labels and so on, it, it can be that sort of silo mentality, which yeah. is completely like at odds with the way I think we can get the best results. Yeah, yeah. So I think it comes from, comes from that. Interestingly, we were just having a chat with uh, Neil Asher in the last podcast, 
he mentioned that we were talking about Australia and why we thought Australia was sort of or certainly was leading the charge in workplace design. Mm-hmm. And he mentioned that he thought there was a, a real fluidity of thought and a, a real sharing of ideas. I thought it was really interesting that I think we still feel quite siloed in the UK. You know, we're sort of everyone's protecting what they're doing. Whereas it seems like over there, there's quite a, 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 an openness. Mm. O- openness is key somehow, like right? You know, right? I think if, uh, if, if we believe that things can be better, then surely that will be from making connections between ideas that didn't maybe exist before because it yeah. wasn't sort of, you know, not to be anachronistic, to be current, to be, you know, contemporary and to think in that way. You also mentioned that you'd sort of taken this sort of journey of discovery that led you to a conference in California where oh, yeah. neuroscience met architecture, which sounded fantastic. That was amazing. I mean, it, that came from a curiosity. I think we also talked about how, in some ways, like at the bottom or the sort of the core belief in what I'm doing is that actually, you know, design has can have an incredibly positive impact mm. on how how we live or you know how we behave and so on. Mm. Not in a deterministic way, but just in a kind of nudging way. And so that led me to sort of get curious about, you know, ways of of communicating that to the disbelievers or the ones that need to be nudged themselves, which might be policymakers and and so on. And and so maybe they would look more at science. Maybe they would look more at something that was measured or something that had evidence. And so um, I kind of put in neuroscience and architecture into the search engine and it came up with AMFA, which is the Academy for Neuroscience and Architecture. And they have a, a biannual conference at the Salk Institute in the University of Southern California in La Jolla. So it was a sort of no-brainer. It's like, oh, my God, you know, I get to go to the Salk Institute, designed by Louis Kahn. It's, it's timed, the event is timed with the uh, autumn equinox, which that building is aligned to, uh, to, to set, set up that the Louis Barragan Rill lines with the setting sun of the you know so at that conference or the sort of uh, the, the group of us the con- you know the congregation go out so you have nobel peace sorry nobel prize winners in neuroscience and you have um stephen hall great architect and so on and, and graduates all watching the sun set together you know so it was amazing you know and it's like that's what placemaking great yeah. great design can create those moments you, you've sent me an amazing picture of that and yeah i'm going to put it on the them blog so there'll be a reference to that if you look at them.co.uk slash blog uh we'll put that image up there because it is absolutely incredible it absolutely captures exactly what we're trying to achieve isn't it yeah completely and one of your quotes from your website i loved as well was i listened to my intuition as much as i researched the facts and I know from that conference, neuroscience believe that architects have got this intuition that we should just let them get on with. Well, yeah, in a sense, what 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 um, you know, uh, Amfa's doing, and, and and actually at that conference, I met um, Itai Palti, who's the founder of the Conscious Cities movement. Mm-hmm. And what he's doing is he's putting together. Let's look at yes, intuition is amazing, and so is analysis. Mm. So, wouldn't the future be to look at both of these? You know, so actually, um, some people say intuition is like something like six thousand computations a second or something, like something phenomenal. And then, if you think analysis has to sort of uh, be super objective and hone in on one particular computation, perhaps. So, it's really interesting to look, think of some of those. Um, intuitions being backed up by evidence mm. and evidence influencing some of that intuition and so the way that those two can talk together is super fascinating and and so that's what you know conscious cities and anthem that kind of movement is looking at so when i say intuition and analysis it's it's, it's those curiosities i suppose that's really interesting um you've uh, you've also taught how important has this been to your journey 
Oh, great. I mean, it's, it's wonderful, of course, to be involved in um, talking about ideas that are not necessarily impacted too much by um, delivery. So that's, that's great. A lot of the conversations that happen there are, you learn a lot focusing on your own kind of what's important to you. So in some part, it's a kind of exercise in uh, developing one's own direction. But then the, the influencing, passing on the, the, the education one has had to the next generation is obviously super, super important. Uh, in that sense, so yeah, it works. I think it works really well with practice. So, mm. as a, I mean, I think didn't Google at one point. I don't know if they still do it, but they used to have like twenty percent for new ideas, right? Yeah, yeah. So in some ways, like working one day a week in, in education is sort of that that, uh, I heard, that way. I heard they've got a big sign up at Google that says we are one percent done, which I thought. Was oh, great. amazing! I amazing! Yeah, yeah. On that one's direction. I mean, the reason I uh, we're speaking today is is mainly due to the Fjords office redesign, which I knew, I know that this is probably one of the first offices you've done, and having seen it, I have to say it's absolutely phenomenal. Uh, There's lots of wonderful elements about it, but how was that project for you? It was a dream, actually. It was so great to work with Fjord. Um, I was introduced to Fjord to give a breakfast talk on process, design process. And so, if you like, the relationship began talking about process and so uh, the project essentially of course the process creates the project right so yeah. it, it, so we engaged really um, it was a real kind of meeting of minds in the development of that project so a lot of the um, interrogation and questions we asked about ways of working that were completely about fjord but also current conversations around how do how do we work together what is workspace design so it was super specific and also raising you know issues of how does space work how does it influence uh, the way that we behave you know and, and work so we 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 talked a lot about how the space was another member of the team mm. and and we hear you know fjordians now saying that so it's kind of it, it's it's worked in wow. that sense yeah i think when we walked around here we just went to see it the other day but um it was lovely to see how excited you still are about a project. Yeah. There's, um, again, a quote from Neil's book about um, a lot of architects sort of look at it as a deliverable product and, mm. you know, there seems to be a deadline mm. where people finish. But what I found from the space was it started to take on a life of its own. I loved the fact that you, A, were very excited about it, but you're welcomed in with open arms. It's like you're another member of the team. People are really familiar with you. It must be lovely to watch the project grow. Our intention was to create the the spaces and surfaces for Fjord to move in as their new home. So it was already for the culture that we had, um, you know, worked understood to to exist. But it was also for new cultures to be formed. Mm-hmm. And so um, continuing to to go into the space and have we're working on a project with Fjord. It's fantastic. You know, you, it, it, there's nothing like being there, and um, it was designed for them for them to work there. It wasn't about necessarily the object or the space is for them to have you know their first and you know fjord work on um, human-centered design principle and i guess that's really the, you know that was a meeting again of a way of approaching work that works so if they're like user experience we're like spatial user experience so it's it's, it's, it's interesting uh, parallel as designers we've loved work with architects you know we sort of feel like there's a level up sort of element to it where you know the combined skills seem to, to bring a, a better project and I'm imagining working with such creative minds like Fjord, that was a similar experience from your point of view. Co- completely. Um, Celia, who was the main point of contact through the 
the process. It was, you know, we, we traveled together to look at the way that the Helsinki Fjord Studio works, the Stock, Stockholm and Berlin, and the conversations we're having around understanding like the interaction and the effect of a room or a wall or a door or, you know, the acoustic um, performance and so on, and how that affects the way that you feel and how you work in a space. You know, that level of conversation is fantastic to have with a client. It's amazing. And, and do you think, I mean... It's pretty obvious I'm sort of answering my own question. Though. The importance of the bravery of the client is obviously essential to a good solution. Completely. And I think, you know, they're, they're uh, you know, um, I guess for them in a way, they're used to being the consult, the design consultant, right? So yeah. they were in a role of being a client. And in some ways, that's a little bit like, you know, suddenly being a teacher to a student and so on. So I think that they were, they were, they were amazing clients. They really understood that it was important to have all those super early conversations continue continue those conversations, set aims, set goals, and so on. It was fantastic. It was great. One of the things I loved about the space, and again, you can see it's truly been designed for them, you know, the, the different areas. So you talked a bit to me about thresholds. Could yeah. you talk a bit more about those? Yeah, I think uh, Robin Evans said that if anything is described by an architectural plan, it's the nature of human relationships. So thresholds, when I when I talk about those, it's like something that you perceive as you've moved into a different zone. It was super clear from talking to Fjord at the beginning that they had different like activities that needed a different kind of space, and the floor plate that we were given as you know as the site is completely open plan. So the sort of early process was really about defining what those activities were, and how segregated or how integrated they were to each other, and then I suppose that became necessary to to define a, a threshold, as I say, a line between those different activities. And so those thresholds ended up being some ended up being super solid, like you couldn't see through, or some you could see through, and then others that you could listen through and others that you couldn't. So you end up having this kind of uh, selection process between 0 to 100 on visibility and acoustic qualities and so on. You might actually just go through an opening, but you feel like you've gone through a threshold. So there's quite a lot of um, uh, conversation around open plan working and how we've probably all had that experience when you're in an open plan space that um, people come up and go, I'm really sorry to interrupt. And I think everyone genuinely is sorry to interrupt and the person is genuinely sorry that they have been interrupted, you know, and it's just it's yeah. kind of disruptive, right? Mm. Um, not in a good way, necessarily. And so one of the reasons through the, because of that is that there aren't thresholds. So if you set up sort of physical thresholds, that it will nudge a behaviour. Um, so you know you're going in a room, for example. Yeah, I certainly felt that even you know from the, the on that top of the first floor there, where you just walk out of what is quite a busy space where yeah. people are working, you immediately step into a booth and you feel like you're you know you've taken three or four steps and you're literally yeah. in a completely different environment and feeling like you're in a different space. Yeah, yeah, and in some ways it's probably fairly sort of theatrical you know and comes back to that sort of notion of scripting and also I said earlier that I was involved in um, theatre before studying architecture and and so there's definitely something about setting up a scene you connect with visually ah, I'm supposed to do this in here you know when we go into churches we know how to behave when we go into libraries we know how to behave so you can use those sort of spatial and, and visual clues to influence the way someone might feel in a space so yeah going into a call space you're like oh I'm I'm in a small space and then you're in a social space it's big it's large it's got long sight lines and so on you mentioned again the uh, the, the choice of open plan yeah uh, versus uh, I think you you had a, a lovely phrase which was we designed walls for creative 
no, I'm, I've got yeah, this wrong. Yeah, walls for creativity, yeah. yeah build walls yeah. for creativity. Build walls for creativity. And it, it is really interesting, this space, because of that, I think. Yeah, I suppose there's that that feeling, like we've all had that, when you sit in a cafe and there's just a couple of you at the table and then you're at a dinner party, it's like eight of you, maybe everyone knows the conversation. Then you get to a sort of banqueting table and you've no idea what's happening at the other end. And, and so on. So there's those sort of um, uh, natural groupings that create kind of a, a conversation. So let's say conversation equals some form of collaboration. So through that conversation with Celia and with the Fjord team, we were like, actually, teams need walls. They don't need to be closed off, but they need some walls. And, and in fact, for them, walls are really important because they use them as surfaces to work on. So actually, it became kind of like, oh, actually, we need to build walls. It does feel very lived in, doesn't it? But yeah. In a really nice way. Uh, you could see that all the spaces and all the walls are being used in different ways and different bags yeah. teams. Yeah. Uh, I love little details like the lock has been, you can draw your own name on yeah. in different ways. Yeah. I certainly felt as I went through the space, so for, for to start with the reception area is quite dark and it's quite, you know, the building difficult. reception area. Yeah, the building yeah, reception yeah. area is quite difficult to, to, to sort of navigate. Yes. You go through and you've got the lift, but when you get into their space, it just opens up and the light's fantastic. Yeah, well, it's interesting. Like, uh, I was at a lecture last night and someone was talking about biophilic design and I expanded my knowledge of it because I kind of was thinking, oh, biophilic is about plants and so on. But he's saying, actually, it's this real kind of in environmental, psychological imprint that we have about light, about planting, about where you can get a drink, mm-hmm. <laughs> about being able to see the horizon about having your feeling like your back is protected. You know, these things that are actually coming from a long, 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 long time ago, sort of evolution in a sense. And so it was really important to us to put plants in there, but it was also really important to get a sense of light. So we were super clear about keeping those distance views in critical sort of navigational moments, like places of congregation. And it was really important to bring light into the centre but not just through light fittings, but through light ceilings. So you sort of feel like there's a bit of a trick on the eye, that there's light coming from above, like a skylight right, or something. Yeah, yeah. So we played those, we, we, we did those intentionally. Them. It was yeah. like a considered consideration. One of the features, again, I'll, I'll put a link to this on the, on the blog, but um, one of the features I love is the sweeping stairwell. Oh, yes. You didn't do that by half, did you? <laughs> no, 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 absolutely not. It was like um, the staircases of performance, something worked where when we arrived there, the, the floor plate was on split levels um, and it was connected by a very, very tight little stair. And it just felt like, oh my God, there's no generosity in there. And the, the moment you almost feel relieved that you've gone down the stair. Oh, that's over, thank goodness, sort of thing. And then we were like, well, actually, we really need to bring this. We want to bring everyone into the centre of that lower plan. So let, let's just pull the staircase in the moment of going down really slowly down to the centre. And, you know, when you're in places like Venice and stuff like that, going on a staircase you don't really notice it right because you've kind of got your eye on where you're going rather than the sort of pain of a stair so there's lots and lots and lots of like research into the relationship of the height of a riser mm. to the size of the tread so we just stretched it right out and brought it into the center of the plan yeah it's a lovely feature and i think again when you're talking about thresholds it sort of breaks you into a completely different space so you've got quite an official uh, and, and lovely beautiful stretched out reception area yeah. There was a meeting going in the meeting space on the right, uh, which I believe is quite 
agile in its use? Yeah, so I think that like, when we were looking at the, 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 the types of spaces that were needed you know, for different activities and working and so on, it became clear that there was quite a lot of the demand on time because obviously the, you know, it's London, the, the building isn't as big as you want it to be, right? So you have to get sort of smart about it. So some of the more dynamic uses that didn't need to be there all the time, we thought, well, why can't we create a space where there's adaptability? So there, there's an area where workshops happen, where... Um, events happen, talks happen, or just informal working happens. And the way that we designed that, we've got a huge cupboard. And in that cupboard, there's like uh, chairs that can be stacked and sofas and wheels and even like plant little gardens and wheels. So they can, the, the Fjordians can create the environment suitable to you know, what they need to use that space for. And that sort of directly led to uh, the connection with the educational charity, I believe. Yeah, yeah, it was interesting. So um, through that kind of process and going, delivering uh, the, the space for a fjord, as we say, the sort of ways of working, so this notion that I sort of deal with space and sort of the dynamics of how you move through space and time, let's say, and they're working a lot with actually that sort of customer touch points and the service design aspect. And there's obviously a lot of synergy between those disciplines. So we're working on an educational charity project where we're kind of looking at how how could that space influence the conversation and the content and the learning and teaching that's going on for this specific uh, charity's mission, which is about offering children, teenagers, stories about how people have got to the position they've got to, which might not necessarily be what you expect. You know, it's hard work, it's focus. And this was the position I was in before that I did that work. So telling people stories, and it's super interesting. And we're working with Fjord on that, so it's great. That's great. So the design's actually leading into new experiences within the space. Yeah, yeah, completely, yeah. Wow. As I mentioned before, the the sweeping stairwell, it just takes you around the corner from this quite... Uh, official feeling space but very beautiful and then it, you go into what feels like almost like a, a living room uh, and a kitchen which is it just feels so warm and there's a lot of movement and, and conversations going on that felt really casual yeah the uh, old home of fjord uh, had somewhere that was affectionately known as the pit and and that was sort of the physical characteristics of it rather than what happened in it but everything kind of went on there there was you know the events, there was coffee, tea, you know, everything kind of adapted into lots of uses. And also from those early interviews with Fjordians, it was clear, like, when they described Fjord, it was like, well, it's a family. And so there was a really strong sense of that. So it was really important, we felt, to create something that would allow that still to happen and build on it more. So um, it's a lot bigger than it used to be in the last space, but it's still the core. And we deliberately kind of created this alcove of open shelves around there, which gave you a sense of um, enclosure but still of permeability and being able to see out and I think I was explaining to you that on the shelves when they moved in the the idea was that there would be um, everyone would have a plant Mm. and before moving from the last studio we organized uh, for Stephanie Buttle who's an artist whose medium is primarily ceramics and she ran a workshop uh, with the Fjordians to make pots so they all made their ceramic pots that then were there had been fired and were there for them on their first day at the new studio. That was and, a really nice touch. And then the plants were, the guys who did all the planting, all the gardens, Roco, Studio uh, Roco, they provided the plants, so everyone got a little plant and so on. And you go there now and everyone's got their names in there and so on. And now it's developed into like they're creating kombucha, they've got kombucha, they've got yeah. scoby and stuff <laughs> like that. It's like and pickle everything. jars and <laughs> it's, it's really fantastic. It's like a kind of... Yeah, family lab. I loved. I noticed on one of the pillars that stickers had started to to uh, to yeah. congregate, and I just loved the fact that it didn't 
oh look, you've got this really beautiful purist photography of the the yeah. finished site, which is it is gorgeous. I love the fact that it's just taken on a life of its own and that no one's treating it too special. You know, yeah. everyone's living in it. Yeah. So it's a lovely thing to see. A large part of the brief was create a blank canvas. So we commissioned Paul Rayside to do the fo- photographs in that sense of like, this is recording, documenting the blank canvas. And mm. it's never intended that it will look like this forever. Absolutely not. Kind of the opposite, you know. So it would be great to go back and do almost exactly the same shots in, say, you know, a year or so. And just to see how that's how that's evolved, and it's I mean it's a joy actually going back in there and seeing how it's being used. I love that. That's yeah. the bet, you know. Oh, okay, yeah, that worked. Yeah, yeah. I loved how warmly you were received. You, you, the, yeah, they, I love they, them. they were just yeah. slightly short of carrying you around in their shoulders when you came. <laughs> <finished. laughs> yeah, it's really they're great. They're the best. One of my favourite rooms is the little reading room out the back, which uh, I almost just wanted to curl up in and have a little sleep. It's so beautifully soft and warm and yeah and quiet. Yeah, I think um, we're all so used to working on screens and and so on. And we all sort of talk about this sort of like uh, being away from them. And um, so it was really important to create one space that was actually about talking or about contemplation um, and not about being digital in any way. I mean, also, actually, you've probably noticed that there isn't this sort of like screens everywhere in the, you know, the screens are for working. They're not for uh, the reception and social spaces and so on, because... You know, it's about us working together and talking and ideas and things that come from that. And so that space, I've been told, there's been some really great sort of conversations that have happened in there. It's a, it's a space, as you say, immediately you go in, you're like, you feel calm. It's, yeah, yeah, it really works. Yeah. I love the features on the ceiling. Uh, it feels like you're in a, a nighttime sky. Right? Yeah, yeah. So. the whole room, everything in the room is, is sort of midnight blue, right? Yeah. And, and then the ceiling is actually um, uh, an acoustic ceiling. Yeah. But because it's been painted blue, suddenly you see the like little white edges of the plasterboard and it looks like stars. It looks like stars. It it feels yeah, like stars. Yeah, yeah. What are your outtakes then? Is this, I mean, obviously, this is your f- first big office project. Yeah. What were your outtakes and what will you take and carry forward? I mean, actually, going back to that earlier, we were talking about, you know, labels and sectors and so on. It's like, it, it, to me, it sort of affirms how important the relationship is between the client and, the, you know, the team, the mm. team that creates it, and the um, ambition and mission of the, the, the client. If we can engage in that conversation, then, that's, then anything can happen. So I think it's really about that, actually, the success of that. Just before we wrap up, uh, you showed me a really interesting exhibition you'd done at the Venice Biennale, which was lovely. I, I love the fact you were offered walls, but you said you wanted windows. Do you want to tell us a little bit about the space between? Yes, uh, yes. I mean, this is a sort of like a, a bit of a preoccupation I have to talk about the space between, which in some ways sort of n- neutralises the conversation about disciplines it's like okay you're an architect you're an interior designer you're blah 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 but actually all of us we all exist in the space between we can't exist in the solid we can only exist in the space so in a sense that our our work is around how we choose to contain that and what the materiality is of that containment and indeed what the proportion is of that containment you know what's the proportion of the volume and uh so when when we were asked oh would you like to exhibit in Venice, and they said, how much wall would you like? And I was like, oh my God, I don't, I don't want a wall. I want a window, I'm in Venice. And and then I was like, you know, have a little bit of a funny thing about quite often architectural exhibitions being like, these are the projects we've done. And it becomes like, well, why would you do that? That's what a website or something can be about. So it was more, as many architects have done, and the exhibitions is more about the sensorial, about an interaction. So it was 
the, the sort of brief to myself was like, this has to be about an interaction and about a communication of, again, the impact that design has on the way that we feel in spaces and so on. So that was our kind of brief, and we called it Reflecting on the Space Between. We were given some windows, and they were at the rear of the palazzo. So the front of the palazzo looks onto the Grand Canal, onto the Rialto Bridge. It's like, oh my God, that view is just unbelievable. And then you start thinking, Venice views, 30 million people go over the Rialto Bridge. You know, what is, what is going on there? It's like we are definitely attracted to beauty or, you know, what, you know. And so we looked at sort of uh, Stendhal's syndrome. Stendhal was a proponent that um, of a syndrome whereby if you were exposed to great beauty, you would get sort of dizzy and have this kind of physical effect and so on, 18th century. And um, there's something going on there, right? We're connected. And again, so it's confirm, affirming this relationship between the built environment and how we feel. And so um, these rear windows, we thought, right, well, let's play with the, the notion of the the way that these views were recorded back in, like, by the Vedutisti and so on, you know, 300 years ago and so on. So we got hold of a uh, permission to get use a canaletto and we printed the canaletto onto the outside of these rear view windows, and then we made a sort of peephole in that window and reflected the view outside. So it was almost as though you were seeing the view on the other side of the palazzo brought into the room. So in order to see that, you had to go upstairs. And so that sort of answered the thing of creating interactivity, because it's like it's hilarious. You stand on the other side of the room, and you watch stairs in a mirror, people go up, and it's like brilliant, right? So... So that was the sort of answering the thing about interacting and getting some kind of communication. And then what we did was we, we took the route from that window to where the where Canaletto had painted the view of the Rialto, which was on the other side of the palazzo. Mm. And then we we mapped the, um, the the dimensions of the of that route, particularly the the volume, so that it was how do you feel in that? So, you know, we all know in Venice, it's like super tight, really narrow. And then you come into some, like either a view to the Grand Canal or one of the canals and you just, there's this sort of sense, this, this bouncing between different proportions. And so we, we drew those proportions and then we thought, wouldn't it be great to sort of reinforce this notion of it's about us in the city by giving dimensions to those sections that were uh, human, human-based. So we took our own kind of uh, dimension and set up a code uh, which uses so the you size used of the your own body to measure the space. Yeah, yeah. Brilliant. So we've got this kind of like yeah, this sort of Da Vinci type kind of code thing going on, which graphically looks rather oh, good. It looks fantastic. <laughs> yeah. I mean, if you're a typophile, uh, yeah. this is the sort of thing you should be looking at. Yeah. R- remind me again, actually, what's the Instagram account for that? That is the space between using underbars. But if you go to Studio Jenny Jones, I think it actually um, takes you there anyway. So is it's it a sort of project site. JennyJones.com. Studio Jenny Jones. Dot com. Yeah. Fantastic. Yeah. It's a really, really good, uh, lovely little uh, exercise and really interesting. And I think it t- takes me back to the passion behind design that you have and, yeah. and creating wonderful things. Jenny Jones, that was really interesting. Thank you so much for your time. Uh, and hopefully looking forward to working with you in the future. Yeah, me too. Completely. Great. Yeah. Thank you so Thank much. Thank you. You've been listening to the Spacecraft Podcast, presented by Dan Mosscrop, brought to you by them.co.uk who provides specialist graphic design support for commercial architects, developers and interior designers. We'll be back with another episode soon, so please subscribe and keep listening.